Box Crusade presents Monthly Monday Movie Muckabout because the podcasting world needs yet another movie review show. I'm Rick, also known as Not Jeff from Jeff and Rick Presents, and I love movies. And I go out there in the wide, wide world of the internets, and I find other people that love movies too. And that's what we do with the show. We get movie people together, we talk about movies, and I give a movie to somebody that they haven't seen before. You know what it's about. We've done this tons of times. Let's just get right into it and meet our guest for this episode. Devin Pike, host of Universal Remote and Who Needs Sleep, which is a 36 hours to fight cancer. It's a telethon. Ah, it's a telethon on their website. It just happened when we're recording this, not when this is coming out, but the 5th, 5th through 6th of December 2020. Great, great little, um, a great, great cause. And um, Devin, I'm glad to have you here as I stumble through with my introduction. <laughs> That's what editing's for. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. They, you know, the that that oh, cut and wonderful. splice is always fantastic. At least you don't have to do it with a razor blade. Like I, back in May day, I had to use a razor blade adhesive tape, and we had a groove in a metal plate that we had to cut across, and we were grateful, grateful. Uh, I'm gonna have to just keep all that in so I can keep all this in, which makes it all make sense. I dare you to keep it in. I dare I, you. I think I will this time. I think I will. Less work for me in the back end. It's all good. It's all good. Hell yeah, absolutely. So Devin, I, I know we've been talking a little bit beforehand, and I know you're not up to your 100%, but we'll skip that piece for now and just talk about why you love movies so much. Honest to God, I, I a friend of mine was asking what the first film you saw in a theater, and I count drive-ins because I, I remember a drive-in before I remember going to one of the many theaters in uh, South Dallas where I grew up. And from a very early age, I loved the movie-going experience. I loved the art of being able to watch a visual story unfold and the craft of cinema. And I know it sounds corny. I know it sounds cliche, but by God, I'm 50 years old and I'm right in that magic path. When I saw Star Wars for the first time, three weeks after it came out at the North Park 3 and 4, which was a 70 millimeter house, it was the first place in America that had a 70 mil print of Star Wars outside of Los Angeles. I was hooked. I wanted to know how to do it. I wanted to know how to make it, how you write it, how you act it. I wanted to learn all of it. And throughout the course of my many, many years, I've been a film critic, an entertainment writer. And because I still don't think that the podcast world has enough middle-aged white guys talking about movies, there is a show that hopefully will launch by the time this episode runs called The Big Film Show. I can't believe it wasn't taken yet, but we searched for it, and it was available, so screw all the rest of you guys. Me and Mark Walters got it, so you can check us out at The Big Film Show. It's available on Apple Podcasts and all the other places where you grab podcasts from. I use Overcast just because I'm a rebel. So, there. More information than you possibly need. I gotta tell you, I was always really happy that nobody took Movie Muck about before. I, I thought I, I'm, I thought I, I love on that it. One, I man. love the title. I love the title. <laughs> it's great. And I love the show. Thank I've you. been listening. I, I, I've been delving back into the uh, archives. And, uh, you know, you guys, I love the approach. I, I love I love what this show does. Thank you. Thank you. I, I've been very happy with the response on it. I love this concept myself, especially now in COVID times. I don't get to see anybody. So this is my excuse to go meet new people, talk about something I love, movies, talk about something I, other people love, movies, and it's that joy of sitting down with somebody and having them see something you like for the first time and talking about it and getting their reaction and just trying to capture a little bit of that where I can. So I, I'm very happy with how it's all turned out. My little experiment. <laughs> Your gray hair does you fantastically. It's standing on end. It's, it's a good look for you. I like it. Thank you very much. I, I, it's my COVID hair. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Actually, uh, to be honest, I, I always said I never could grow a beard. And then this happened. I was sent home to work from home. And I said, well, <laughs> no time like the present to prove I can't grow a beard. The first, and the first time you grow your beard out and you just can't care. Because that awkward in-between yeah. stage, you cannot care about it. You just have to let it go Grizzly Adams, and then you start trimming it back, and that's where your beard actually takes shape. Because God knows the first time I grew a beard was when I was 39, and it just took forever because I was like, oh, this looks horrible. Shave, 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 shave. So, yeah. Yeah. I get it. Yep. I get it. And welcome back to Beardcast. Um, 
Which exists. I looked for it. <laughs> there is a podcast for everything. There really everything. is. Everything. <laughs> uh, that's why my other show is talking about Power Pack, a small comic book from the 80s that few people have read. Wow. You know, there's a podcast for everything. So and there's a you. fan base for everything, which is massively important. Yes, yes. But... You know what? Way off topic. Whee! Way off topic. We're going to bring ourselves back in. I'm going to go ahead and give you the movie that I would like you to watch. Are you ready? I'm ready, and I'm actually excited about this because it's always interesting to find a film that I haven't either seen in a couple of decades or have not seen at all. So hit me with it. All right. We are going to go back all the way to 1941 because the list that you gave me was an old list, so mm-hmm. I, I went back to that 1941 American film noir film, The Maltese Falcon. Yes, I'm so glad you picked this. Oh. It's the classic. <laughs> it is the classic. We are talking about Humphrey Bogart. We are talking about Mary Astor. We are talking about Peter Lore. We are talking about an amazing cast that is directed and scripted by John Huston from a book written by Dashiell Hammett. So besides those facts, what do you know about this movie? I know that this is actually where Bogey started to build his reputation as a cinema icon. He was a, he was a star by the time he made The Maltese Falcon, but this is the film that really just drove the point home where he was going to be that kind of guy. And mm-hmm. there's very little actors like Bogart in cinema where he's dark, he's handsome, he has a a brutality to him that I don't think a lot of other actors were able to portray without being brutish or just hulky mm-hmm. where you know uh, Cagney came close but he still had that kind of that that kind of lovable quality to him as well. Bogey, a little bit of an edge, a little bit of an yeah, edge too. Bogey you loved him but he was definitely 30 grain sandpaper all yeah. the time. Oh, so yeah. Yeah, he's he's definitely definitely that that every man, but that every man with a little bit of the chip on his shoulder, the little bit of darkness in his past. And you watch the films he was in, you watch the different roles he took, and it's like, is he acting? Is he acting, or is he just putting on a different shade of bogey? But we can get into that. So, I mean, you have already said that you are a you know critic, you are a writer, you love film, you love cinema, and this is kind of one of these classics. I mean, I'm holding up here Vintage Classics VHS MGM. (laughs) I mean, Mm -hmm. this is one of the ones you have to see if you start writing critical reviews. I mean, how did you get by the critical review board without actually seeing this? Now, bear in mind, when I I submitted the list, I said either I have not, I have never seen it, Mm -hmm. or it has been so long since I have seen it that I've really forgotten and I need to look at it through new middle-aged or, you know, late middle-aged eyes. So what I remember, I... That's what really sucks. I don't remember very much about the Maltese Falcon at all, except for the fact that it, you know, it, did have, it does have Peter Lorre. It does not have Lauren Bacall, so it doesn't have that interplay with mm-hmm. them. And Dashiell Hammett is just a phenomenal uh, potboiler of a whodunit writer. Uh, you know, the classic gumshoe was Hammett, you know, breathed that genre. So that's really all I remember from it. So I can't wait to revisit this film. Do you, do you remember when you might have seen it the last time? I know that I saw it uh, my sophomore year in college because I had to write about gumshoe flicks or noir flicks. So there was this, there was... Um, Oh, God. Double, in, double indemnity. Well, double indemnity is more noir. Right, yeah. Um, there were there were three or, there were two or three other films, and this is the only one that Bogart was in. And the other ones were really not that well-known. I was told to dig deep for it. I just really don't remember. Man, it has been decades. It really has been. I want to say it was probably, I probably went back and resaw it like 94 or 95, but I, I've, I've slept since then. So yep. it's all fair game. Yeah. All right. Well, you know what? There is no time like the present to pop it back into your VHS player, pop it back into your streaming service, however you can possibly get it. And- I may have this thing on Laserdisc. <laughs> <laughs> I may. That is the, that is still the only uh, type of media that I don't actually own. I don't have a, a Laserdisc, but I've got the VHS. Oh, I also don't have beta. I don't have beta either. But Well, both uh, of them are such pains in the ass to get into yeah. your TV. Uh, the VHS is, is hard enough, but the Laserdisc only had, not optical out, component 
and oh. composite. So you have to get that to an HDMI connector, and boy, howdy, does it look terrible. We thought it looked so good in the late 90s. That was the only way that I watched films back then. Oh, I, I still have all my VHS tapes. I'm, I'm going to be rewatching this on VHS. I mean, I, Hell yeah, I, man. There's a number of them that I watch on VHS, and it's just like, it's grainy. I have to get up because I don't have a remote for the VHS anymore. I got to get up and like <laughs> stop it and start it, and it's like all the way over there. It's like, ah, what am I doing? Ah, oh, this is old school. But <laughs> while I am going through all of this pain and you all do what you need to do, we are going to sit back and we're going to listen to the trailer from 1941's film noir, The Maltese Falcon. Come closer. I want to talk to you. I'm going to tell you an astounding story. The story of the Maltese Falcon. 600 years, the Falcon has carried the mystery of a fabulous wealth under its grotesque wings. I could tell you a thousand tales of the men and women who have hunted this evil bird. But every story has the same ending. Murder. Listen to these incredible people, all consumed by their passionate greed for the Maltese falcon. What have you ever given me beside money? Have you ever given me any of your confidence, any of the truth? Haven't you tried to buy my loyalty with money and nothing else? What else is there I can buy you with? I won't play the sap for you. I haven't lived a good life. I've been bad. Worse than you could know. We were talking about a lot more money than this. There are more of us to be taken care of now. Well, that may be, but I've got the falcon. You may have the falcon. We certainly have you. I've taken a lot of riding from you, I'm gonna take. Get up and shoot it out. Stop it, the police will be here any minute. Now talk. Oh, how can you accuse me of such a terrible... This isn't the time for that schoolgirl act. We're both of us sitting under the gallows. Before I get into the conversation with Devin, I want to give a quick synopsis on the film for anybody who has not seen this absolute masterpiece. Sam Spade, a private detective working in San Francisco, is approached by a mysterious woman looking for a lost sister who has been seduced by a man. Spade's partner, Archer, is murdered while trying to follow the suspected man, who is also found dead shortly after. The police, investigating the murders, begin to lean on Spade who is intrigued by this mysterious lady and decides to investigate the issue further. As he presses the woman, Bridget O'Shaughnessy, for the real story, a tale of deceit, money, death, and history begins to unfold. A group of characters are all on the hunt for a strange object, the Maltese Falcon, an item of untold wealth. Spade is piecing together the pieces from lies and half-truths spoken by Joe Cairo and Casper Gutman, two other players in this dark tale. As the cops continue to close in and the danger begins to escalate, the streetwise Spade continues to keep a step or two ahead of everyone. Now, Devin, you did mention that this is not your first time seeing this film, but it's been so long that this is kind of an absolute retake for you. What did you think about it? Did it meet up with your remembrances of the times past? Is it as good as it says it should be? Um, yes and yes. I... <laughs> I'm always a fan of film noir, and I'm a film. Of, I'm, a I'm a film of gumshoe fans. I'm a fan <laughs> of gumshoe films, and you don't get any better than Dashiell Hammett's Sam Spade. The no. things that I didn't know when I was watching the film was how John Huston shapes everything. 
with and yes. it's not that you just find out the intricacies of the plot and the the mystery along with Spade you can see Spade working it out and the communication between Houston and Humphrey Bogart was just freaking lockstep because oh. everything you needed to know about Spade you learned in the first 5 minutes and everything you needed to know about the film, you still didn't know because you're left guessing at every single turn. And there's nothing worse than when you can sit back and look at a film. Because I've dated women who will say, oh, I figured out who it was in five minutes. Shut up. Watch the film. <laughs> Swear to God. So and I, 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 I'm not going to say I've broken up with women because of this, but it definitely played into the decision making process. But sincerely, one of the if there, there's a stack of films that if aliens come down from from the heavens and because there's no down in space, um, <laughs> if they if they landed on Earth and approached me and said, describe the human condition, there are there's there's a stack of films I would give them, but I would definitely give them the Maltese Falcon because it shows the duplicitous nature of humanity without making us sound like complete and utter Yeah, I can go with that because you have even Sam. Well, throughout the film, there's a lot of characters who have the opportunity to do good. And there's a lot that are trying to do good. I can, I mean, you can say that the policemen mostly are, are out there doing good. Uh, you know, maybe they're trying to really put the screw on Sam a few times, but they want to get the killer. That's what they want to do. They want to get the killer. And Sam Spade even has his own moral code, too. So you do get that as well. And, of course, his secretary, Effie, I don't think there's any finer soul in the film than her. But there is good people in the film. But you're correct. This is this shows the double standard nature of most humans. Performance-wise, you can't get any better than Bogart. And yeah. it, it reminds me, because Bogart was not a classic Hollywood hero. He, no. He, was he was brusque he was abrupt he wasn't necessarily handsome in the classic hollywood way but he was handsome in that roguish rakish kind of way and the sneer is just i mean you could drip it over pancakes in in lieu of syrup it was just perfect and his reactions are about as authentic and as transparent an acting job as i think that i had seen in that era and mm-hmm. once again, you, you half the credit goes to Bogart and the other half goes to John Houston because he yeah. knew the performances he wanted to get out of his players at all times. The first of two uh, performances we see with Peter Laurie because he goes on from this to uh, Casablanca along with mm-hmm. Bogart and just, God, it's just so, so good. God, I love this movie so much. <laughs> well, let's let's get into talking about Bogart, because I, I think you're right. He is not a classically trained actor. You take Bogart from then and put him into films today. You have got a character actor that is in a whole bunch of movies, but he's never going to hit it big because he doesn't have the look. He doesn't have the voice. It's you, you have to get past that and get to the acting chops. The beat of this film that he sets, he sets the staccato pace of the film and everybody else is trying to keep up because he is going at a pace of one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. And it's kind of funny because you got Peter Lohr coming in with a kind of the soft roll and he he's on a more of a three, four. And I, I'm not a music person at all. I'm making this stuff up. So bear with me here. But he's on a he's on a much slower beat. But still, his beat goes into the cadence that. That is being said by Humphrey Bogart, by Sam Spade. This is what we're talking about. This is the moments that we're talking. And everybody else is keeping up. It's that His Girl Friday, fast talking, Aaron Sorkin type of writing style and the pitter-patter walk and talk. Yeah, we were doing this back then, folks. And it's it's funny you mentioned music because I never... I, I usually don't equate acting to music, because, and I should because there's a lot of parallels you can draw into it. Mm-hmm. But Bogart acting is like Sinatra singing. And I say that from the from his earlier hits, mm-hmm. where he's not singing on the beat, he's singing over it. He's singing through it. And the, the beat exists for the musicians behind him to catch up. But Sinatra is going on his own pace, and he's going to make the song his own. And that's the thing that Bogart does with Sam Spade. It is yes. just, it's, it's masterful at every level. Because he is thinking two or three steps ahead. And, and the points that he doesn't know, he's still thinking faster than 
the criminals, even though he doesn't know what the criminals are after. He is still trying to make sure that he is a couple of steps above them as he's getting the information out of them. And that's the bit that we're trying to keep up. This is one of these strange films that, except for when he gets knocked out, the majority of this film is really his viewpoint. You don't have many scenes where he is not awake and aware of what's going on around him. So and mostly you in control as, of his situation. Right. Mostly. And so you as, you as the audience are getting the, like you said, getting the information at the same exact time that he's getting it. And so you have to put it together. It's just he's smarter than us. And he understands the human condition more than we do. And how great is Mary Astor as Bridget O'Shaughnessy? She is, even when she seems vulnerable, just like Spade, you don't trust her as far as you could throw her. And no. that's if, if I have any gripe with this film, it's Spade falling for her on some level because it always seemed like he has kept her at arm's length, kept her at arm's length because he knows that she's got an angle. Yeah, she's an attractive broad, but you know, it, it, the, the bottom line is she's grifting him for something. He just has to get to the bottom of what he's grifting him for. And as you get towards the end of the flick, where you see the less abrasive side. You can't really say the softer side of Sam Spade because I'm not sure that exists. But, <laughs> I mean, besides the fact that you've got Ava, the widow, who has got, has got a thing for Sam and is always trying to, you know, rekindle that now that her husband is dead, which, mm -hmm. you know, in, in that era of time, you're not supposed to depict divorce. Leaving a man for another man was verboten in the cinema code at that point. Yeah. So yeah, Hayes code. The funny thing is, is that John Houston really dances around that because I don't think that Miles Archer is even cold before no. any, before Iva starts going after Sam again. And of course, that's setting up the entire thing that they had the relationship beforehand to set that up. So he danced around a lot of issues with with sleeping with somebody outside of a wedding with premarital sex too. The, the, he dances around that entire issue. He dances around a lot of the drinking, a lot of the depravity that's in here, and a lot of the murder too. I think I might have an answer for you about why Bridget appeals to Sam Spade, and especially more more so than Iva does. I think the reason is is because she's smart. She can be conniving and she can come up with things and she can lie and that's challenging him and he and she works on sam spade's level okay yeah, yeah i get that she, she she works and so it's like she may she, she's good looking she is good looking she wasn't as good looking as eva but and eva's throwing herself at her. there's no challenge there anymore he probably was challenged with eva because he had a partner you know he, she was the wife of the partner you that's don't a chase challenge the car you've already caught exactly he's like there's no challenge here for me Bridget is a constant challenge because she's always going to be challenging him. She's always going to be confronting him. She's going to be lying and trying to get around him. And he finds that interesting. He wants to solve this. He's always solving a mystery. He's got to be solving a mystery. What's the angle? Why am I in so much trouble with this thing? Is this dame going to get me killed? And where, uh -huh. when am I going to get paid? <laughs> right, right. I mean, the only the only character he's not like that with is probably Effie because he cares for her. I think there's a good, deep relationship there. He would never have a relationship with her, though. They have just a really good one-on-one -on -one relationship. But even then, you get into that his girl Friday pitter patter routine when they talk. That's a constant in film noir, especially with a, with, with a detective agency. If the, I mean, nine times out of 10, the person who runs the office is a woman. It's completely platonic, even though you're in the 21st century would sh say, I ship that because that's what you <laughs> want to see because they are yeah. the perfect couple, but it will never, ever happen because Effie no. knows all of Sam's secrets, every last one of them to the point where when, sh when she walks Bridget in, she's like, this guy, this gal's a looker. You want to talk to her? And it's like, <laughs> God Almighty, that's that's the that's the kind of office admin I want. She she knows his style. She knows what he wants. <laughs> All right, let, let's talk about a few of the other characters. There's gonna be a lot of good characters in here. Let's talk about Peter Lore, because that's the first one we we run into. Joel Cairo comes in. Like I said, he's he's got the offbeat. He's the one, he's the character who's got the offbeat. He's slower, he's methodical. He I was showing my daughter some old Looney Tune episodes and they had a Peter Lore character. I'm going, oh my god, it's right out of the Maltese Vulcan. It is Peter Lore. 
I don't know exactly how much he was really acting or is just like he's just how much he's slime he's turning on in his voice. Well, all of the I mean, all of the characters played off of his personality type. I mean, it's it, yeah. I I have yet to see any interview footage of Peter Laurie, so I don't know if that's the way he spoke in real life, but he definitely plays it to the hilt. And when you're yes. watching him, you think that he might be in in the term in the parlance of the era, a Nancy boy and not yes. really capable of taking care of himself but he proves that he is down along the way it's not that he can't get the drop on sam spade because nobody can even a hired thug has a hard time drawing a gun on him and keeping it there (laughs) and we'll talk about elisha cook later on oh yeah yeah laurie is fantastic in this because he understand again it's john houston and the masterful direction knowing what performances he needed to get out of his actors at all times Yes. And with Peter Lorre, you've got this character of Joel, of Cairo, of somebody who is, he's not the seedy underworld. He is the upper class underworld. Mm-hmm. He's the one that goes to the opera. He's the one that, that likes the finer things. He's wearing nicer clothes. He's got a card that's got a scent on it. He, he p- puts perfume on his cards. <laughs> he likes the finer things. And yes, you're right. He's fine with most people. He's not going to get the drop on Sam, but he's also provides some of the comedy in the film. Because he's got the little side jabs that he does. He makes little side comments. He kind of does a little narration. A lot of his words are in ellipses as he's talking. (laughs) It's just side things about commenting on something Sam has said or or a situation he's in. Oh, my God, I got a headache. But he provides a little bit of that comic relief, which you you need in a film like this. Very much so. Film noirs can be dark, dark, dark. But if they get too dark, you're going to lose the audience. You need to bring the audience back in and and show that there's a level of of you even if it's dark humor there's a level of humor in there just to release this the tension a little bit and i think he does a great job in that and it's fascinating to watch him spade and cairo's first interaction when you're watching them not really spar but sizing each other up and figuring out okay how much can i get away with and what do i need to do to come out on top of the situation and it's really <laughs> funny watching the two of them dance around each other quite mm-hmm. literally in case because they're basically going around spade's entire office at that point until sam spade knocks him out because that's what right. he's gonna do and then he gives him back the gun at the end and he does the thing again i want to search your office and sam's like go ahead <laughs> come on <laughs> you know? man he's like he's sam's just like i Go ahead. I don't care. I, you already know I can take the gun off you. I know you're not going to shoot me. You want to look around the office? There's nothing here. Go ahead. Too good. It's all good. I want to save Gutman for the last because I think Gutman's he's a piece de resistance. Let's talk about Wilmer Cook, Elijah Cook's character. If you're a Star Trek fan, you know him as he's a judge who has to or he's a lawyer who has to defend Kirk against a, a wrongful death on his ship when it, when we wind up that Kirk didn't kill him. It was a revenge thing. And I, I should have looked it up when I did, but... He portrayed lawyer Samuel T. Cogley in Star Trek's episode of Court Martial. I wanted to say Cogburn, but I know that's John Wayne. <laughs> uh, this is one of his first roles, and he had this menace to him that wasn't the hard-boiled gangster look. You can tell that this was probably his very first detail as the muscle for Gutman. And you never know what you're going to get out of him until you, and because the first half of the film, all he is is a figure standing outside the window. Right. And right. well, the guy is watching us on the street. That guy's been following me. You Did you get followed here? Yeah. The schmucks outside. So you wind up getting to getting to know him in really the third act of the film. And I think he plays it perfectly. It's this wide-eyed, I have this gun. I am the muscle. I Wait, I'm out of my depth here. No, I'm not. I'm still going to go after it. So, yeah. I always find him to be the weakest part of the film, but I don't mean that as a as a negative. I mean, he is the weak link. Yes. And that's just because by the time that we see him, the time he finally really makes his move, he has been so castracized, so just cut off at the knees by Sam Spade that He's a joke. He's a complete joke. You aren't threatened by him. He looks threatening. He's got the mean muscle face. But Sam has already pared him down to being a thin little kid who's playing grown-up time now. And with any other flick, with any other flick, once that happens the first time, that's the last time you see 
that muscle guy because yeah. he's already been bested and he's going to go off and sulk somewhere or he's dead. But not yeah. this film because this film keeps him around and that makes him more dangerous as the time goes on because he knows that he can't get the drop on Spade toe to toe. He's got to be mm-hmm. sneaky about it and then stab him in the back. Well, he doesn't get stabbed, but you get the idea. <laughs> he, he gets kicked in the back. There yeah, you go. Same kind of thing. And kicked in the face. But, and kicked in the face. But yeah, he has no real muscle on him. He's He is... He is the fall guy. He's the guy who's going to be set up for the fall at the end of the film with good reason because they know he's a pushover. But they they know he's easy to control. His face that he's going to be the guy. Who I know. And that just cuts off the other ball and throws it in the gutter. Yeah, it's just like, it's like, oh man, this, I, you almost feel sorry for him. You almost feel sorry for him, except that by this point in time, you're like, he doesn't have any redeemable characteristics. He, he, he The only characteristic he has is... Keanu Reeves in Much Ado About Nothing. I'm angry. I'm angry. That's his only mood, folks. Yep. yep. <laughs> so I, I, he's he plays a fascinating character just in that sense that he is the scapegoat. Mm-hmm. He feels that one role because guess what? All the other tough guy roles are taken. Another reason why he sticks around, though, is because we are dealing with a cast of four here. The villains are four. Well, there used to be five, but we've already killed and knocked off one of them. So we got four villains left here, and he is the toady. He is the toad. He's not the damsel. He's not the brains of the outfit. He's not the... I'm not quite sure what role Peter Joe Cairo plays, but he, he's kind of a third party that becomes part of the gang. But he, he's he the plays wild the muscle. He's the wild yeah, he's the card. Wild. He's the wild card. But yeah, he plays the muscle. And once Sam Spade comes on the scene, it's like, the muscle's taken care of. <laughs> the muscle's taken care of. All right. Let's move on to the man himself, Gutman. The fat man. Uh, who, the fat man. I am a man who likes talking to man who likes to talk. <laughs> Love it. You know in the first 90 seconds what you're going to get out of this guy. Oh, you do. You do. Now, I have to say that uh, I've got another show I do, Unpacking the Power of Power Pack, where we talk about a comic book, Power Pack. And Louise Simonson, her husband's Walt Simonson. And Walt Simonson drew this picture of Gutman. And he wrote that phrase, I'm a man who likes talking to a man who likes to talk. And it was on the walls of their apartment. So when they were drawing this comic book and June Brigman was drawing what the apartment looks like, she said, it's going to look like the apartment that Wheezy and Walt have. So she drew that picture on the wall of the Power Pack apartment, which is the reason why I kind of tripped back on this film once. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's right out of the movie. <laughs> Beautiful. So. Let's talk about Gutman. Let's talk about this guy, played by Sidney Greenstreet. What do you think of him? I mean... <laughs> Honest to God, I in my notes, I wrote down Bond villain because he would have I mean, he, he would have no problems taking Gutman out of Dashiell Hammett's book and putting him in an Ian Fleming book, and he would be perfect in the middle of a, an, an inactive volcano that opens up to, to be his lair because he is incredibly wealthy, mm-hmm. incredibly well learned just nefarious to the core and on top of it very single-minded all he wants is the maltese falcon once the maltese falcon is out of play he doesn't care doesn't care about revenge or anything else he could have burned the whole joint to the ground and instead hey maltese falcon ain't here let's get out of here and he's gone. Let's go to the next place. Yep. We want to do the next thing. He's got the presence too. I mean yes oh, yeah. he is he is a large man but even without that he feels his frame and he feels the room just with his presence. He comes in and you know, this is the man in charge. This is the money. This is the bank. This is the brains of the outfit. And you know all that about him. He's the, he's the, he's the end boss. <laughs> yeah, he's the end boss. And he's not one that you can fight with physical force. He's kind of like the kingpin a bit. You know, he, 100%. He, you, you don't think that he's going to be physically menacing at all it's just that you can't beat him on that level you could but that's not what this fight's about this fight's about the intellect let's play chess let's play chess and checkers at the same time let's play a third game at the same time because we are doing a lot of things going on this was his film debut too he before this he had been all over the stage so he refused to appear in films until he was 61 years old and this was his first film you have a classically classically trained actor theater actor and he comes on here and knocks it out of the part in this role standing toe-to-toe with humphrey bogart with peter lore there i mean it's something that he could just walk on a film and not 
be versed in film and still own the stage. He understands that he doesn't have, uh, there are a lot of theater actors who can't dial it back for the film camera, especially in the early years of cinema, where you saw yeah. people making the transition from stage to screen. With Green Street, he knew how to pull his verbal punches. He knew to be able to draw it back. He had, like you said, the presence, but not the overbearing. I, I studied at Juilliard and I can project to the back row. He didn't need that because <laughs> his physical presence does two thirds of his volume for him. And mm -hmm. he cannot, cannot agree strongly enough. He dominates a scene with Humphrey Bogart where it's just the two of them and a tight angle where they're just sitting there and Green Street has exposition all for about three or four minutes. And you well, don't you don't mind it because it's Green Street delivering it. We're looking at the middle of the film where we finally figure out what's going on. Because up until this point, we've only heard lies. We haven't heard exactly what this film is about at all until he comes on and Sam's like, look, here's the quarter. I'm going to put it in the slot. Start talking and tell me why we're here. I understand you're going to be saying some lies, but... Before you get to the really lying part, you're going to tell me, what are we after? And that's where we finally get the MacGuffin. We finally find out that this is a thing that they're going for. So he does have exposition. And by this point in time, the construction of the film, the construction of the writing has brought us to the point where it's like, okay, we're hooked. You can talk to us for five minutes straight about the history of the Crusades. And we're hooked because guess what? We want to know. <laughs> at some point where you're looking at it going, if this were 30 years later, Indiana Jones would be hunting for the Maltese Falcon instead of yeah. Sam Spade in yeah. San Francisco, which would be a, a perfect setting for it. So, you know, we, we've got a new we've got a new Indiana Jones game coming out. Maybe they go after the Maltese Falcon in it. Who the hell knows, man? Well, yeah, and you're right. And I mean, going back to your theory about Gutman and the Bond, Bond villain, you got the Bond villain, you got the wild. Dear God, I've never put it together before, but this is a proto <laughs> Jones film. Yep, 100%. <laughs> it is. Except that, I mean, we have to say Sam Spade is no Indiana Jones. No. He, and no, well, I mean, like Indiana Jones, Sam Spade does not understand women, does sure. not get yeah. them at all. And Indy. While he is a, ro a romantic and, you know, I mean, uh, there's, you know, the, God, the, so many, so many Ford. amazing, amazing women in the Indiana Jones flicks, <laughs> but Marion Ravenwood, he, he, mm. freckles. Mm. So he, he has the loves of his life, but he he's clueless when it comes to that because he's single minded on the gig on. Yes, it belongs in a museum. You know, you, that's that's what that's what Indy's all about. So do you. Yeah. Whereas where Sam is, it belongs in my pocket because I'm going to get paid. <laughs> yeah. How much is this going to be worth? <laughs> I, I guess it brings us to let's talk about the Maltese Falcon. I was just upstairs before we recorded. I was talking to my daughter a little bit about this. And I said, well, I'm going to talk about the Maltese Falcon. She says, well, what is it? Well, it's the stuff that dreams are made of. And that confused her, and that meant I had to explain what a MacGuffin is. This film, not only is it film noir, but this film is the epitome of what a MacGuffin is. Because that's what it is. The Maltese Falcon is nothing. It means nothing whatsoever. It does not do a thing except move the plot along. This is the thing that, the, that everybody else in the film is going for. And at the end, it's nothing. Nothing at all. It's a big hunk. It's a big hunk of lead. Yep. People died for it. And maybe it, it may not even actually exist. Yeah. That's part of the that's part of the mystery as well is, is this a real thing at all? We don't know. We just are still going on a myth and legend and heresy. And we're going to just find out. We're going to we're going to continue on the quest. Oh, yes, because there's always more of a quest to go on. And this is more exciting than they are probably going to be as disappointed when they get the Maltese Falcon as they are when they find out it's a fake. Yeah, you can't you can't you, you can't do anything with the car once you've caught it. Right. Wow, that's a perfect analogy right there. <laughs> they are dogs chasing after the car. They are they and if they catch it they're going to say, "Okay, we got it. What do we do now?" I mean, at that point in time, the only thing you can do is die because you have nothing else to live for. It would have been interesting this if part of the mythology of the Maltese Falcon is anyone who chases it is led to ruin because at that point, the, but I am smarter than that. Therefore I will make sure that I avoid the Maltese Falcon's cursed existence. 
Or, not unlike, <laughs> we were talking earlier about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, not unlike the idea that as long as you chase it, it will exist. But once you chase it, it's going to stop existing. It's Schrodinger's bird. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's something that's such an ethereal concept that you don't even know if you can never actually own it because one, to own it means that it doesn't exist anymore. That's it. Yeah. That's just it right there. Love it. Ex- Love it. We have to explain Schrodinger's cat and Schrodinger's bird to people now. Great. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we, we've talked and talked about this film. You said that the the only thing there's one thing you thought was a negative, and that was the relationship between but between Spade and O'Shaughnessy, because it, 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 with with Spade, Spade doesn't even smile, and this was a mm-hmm. character choice that Bogart had through he, he played Spade two or three times, and he very rarely smiles, and when he smiles, it looks like a sneer because yeah. it doesn't look like there's pure joy behind it. The closest he gets to it is when he knows mentally he's got the upper hand on whoever he's going after, uh-huh. but that's not even, it's it's almost a pyrrhic smile. And it's a smile that only he can see. Yeah, exactly. Because, because nobody else is there. He's just like, ha I'm on top of it. Yeah. Is there anything else in the film, though, that you would consider to be a negative at all? No. And like I said, it, I, I, I mean, it's really hard to say that there is or I, not. I, I'll, I'll just immediately say no. I mean, the the score is fantastic. This The set design is perfect. I mean, you could have very easily put this on as a stage play. Yes. It, because it, it's very limited. It, it, it Very few exterior shots, you know, and even those were, were uh, the majority of them were shot on uh, on set. Uh, on the back lot. Not too many of those scenes you could you could probably move into an office or something. He's, well, except you, for except for the uh, the death of Archer, that has to be outdoors. The death has to be outdoors, but you could have you don't need to actually show it. You could still just change the dialogue to them having come in and providing him the information. He doesn't need to go out there and see it or set I mean, it he up goes out there and the looks- two standing sets or three yeah. because you've got the hotel room, you got Spade's office, and you've got Spade's apartment. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. Oh, the uh, yeah, the hotel room. I said the hotel room, yeah. We, we, yeah, we have two hotel rooms. We got uh, Gutman's hotel room and we got Bridget's hotel yeah, room. Yeah, you can redress that. Sure, that's easy. <laughs> no, you could definitely do this as a stage play. I'm sure it's been done as a stage play before. It would be very surprising if it weren't. Speaking ill of a John Huston film <laughs> is anathema. I don't know yeah. that I, I, I'm physically capable of doing it. But in this case, this was... Everybody working at the peak of their abilities. Uh, oh, yeah. Bogart, Astor, Laurie, uh, Green Street. Houston writes and directs it, and it's an adaptation of a Dashiell Hammett, which probably is my favorite Dashiell Hammett book. So, yes. honest to God, it, there's nothing. I mean, I have to nitpick to find anything negative about it. I mean, the only things that he did from the actual book, he took out a few specific scenes just to get around the Hayes Code. Yep. I think that, I mean, it would be nice to have those in. Do they need to be in? Maybe, maybe not. I think that it's a little bit more mysterious when you ask, well, what exactly happened when Bridget and Sam turned off the lights? I don't need to know. I really don't need, don't need to, know. to know. We don't need to see it. No. It's better. It's better in the imagination. Like a lot of things, I think that the Hayes Code actually did more harm than good because when you take the when you take those scenes out when you say you will not show these scenes and the director's like well we need to hint at it they keep enough in there to keep the audience guessing and the audience has to fill in what happens between those two frames what you and i can come up with is going to be much worse than what a director can show us but see i I look at that as a positive though because i don't need everything spelled out for me i'm one of these weird people that thinks that the ending of lost was not the worst thing on television i'm one of these people that thinks the ending of the sopranos was not the worst thing on television because we don't know and anything Mm -hmm. we come up with is going to be far better because when you spell it out when you tell us who the mother is and how I met your mother, when you have David and Maddie hooking up in moonlighting, that ruins everything. When you answered <laughs> X-Files, when did X-Files actually go downhill? When we found out what the conspiracy actually was. Yep. Before then, you- the shadows were just you mind filling in the gaps in any way mm-hmm. possible. 
I'll say this and see how many people don't like it, but I don't care. It's what makes Usual Suspects good at the end. Because you get to the end of Usual Suspects and you watch him put it together. You know what the answer is. But then once he leaves, it's done. Because you are still sitting there like, well, what's truth? What's fiction? What was lies? What was real? You know what? You're going to have to figure it out yourself because we've given you everything. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's that's when you have to end the movie. There's no Don Yuma that's going to match that at that point. Yeah. And you, you get movies like that and you get scenes like that. You get TV shows like that. And it's fantastic. Don't answer all the questions. Right now, uh, WandaVision is on and everyone's having conversations. It's really complex. Yes, I want. Sign me up for more of that. Don't spell it out for me. There's other things I can get to spell it out for me. Give me mystery. Let me put some things together. Let it be. Challenge my expectations. Let me watch it another time to pick up all the clues that I didn't see the first time. I'm happy exactly. doing that. It makes exactly. my Disney Plus subscription actually worth more than it already is. Ah, <laughs> uh, but it's good stuff, though. Oh, yeah. No, going back to this film, though, I mean, I think, I think, and when I said that the Hayes did more bad than good, I mean that it was what they were trying to do. They weren't doing it because we were coming up with things that were much worse than it was. And I think that this film does benefit from that because yeah, you could have the sex scenes, you could have the more drinking scenes, but you don't need it. You already know what it is. You know that Sam Spade is a lush. You don't need to see him just passed out drinking. You watch him putting drink after drink down talking to Gutman. And the only reason he goes down is because of the knockout drops. (laughs) He could go he could match Gutman all day long. You know that because he's the down and dirty detective. And let's let's be clear. We don't need to see Bogart making out with anybody. The kiss is about as good as you need with him. The the idea of him in a Mickey Rourke style setting, not what we need. I can live the rest of my life and get that image out of my head. Like I said at the beginning, Humphrey Bogart is not a modern star at all. He is no Brad Pitt. Oof, wow. He is he is short, he is thin, and yet his head is so big and he's just grizzled and and not uh, that tall. Not, not that, that tall. tall. No, no, no. Ingrid Bergman was taller than him to the point where in Casablanca, they had to bring in Apple boxes when they had a type two shot. That, I, that's a true story. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, and, and they kept those around for Tom Cruise. Damn skippings. <laughs> Lifts can only get you so far in life, my friend. Oh, we are way off topic here, but that's all right. (laughs) Is there anything else you want to say about this film before we rank it? Uh, Watch it. If you've got HBO Max, it's included in your your subscription. If you don't, find a really good transfer of a Blu-ray and watch it. It is essential viewing. I am ashamed that it took your invitation to watch this again, that it's taken me, I'm not kidding, probably 30 years since mm-hmm. I've seen it before, and it will not be another 30 before I watch it again. Now, this is definitely one that you want in your rotation, especially if you are a film connoisseur. You want to keep keep fresh on this. If nothing else, if nothing else, just to hear the dialogue, to listen to the patter, to watch a masterclass in direction and in acting. I mean, it's fantastic. I, I'm going to ask you a question here that is just going that I don't need to ask, but I have to because it's in the script and I got to do it. I'm giving you five bags of popcorn and you're going to figure out how many of those bags of popcorn you're going to hold up to this film. One through five. We don't do halvesies here. Five is the best. How many are you holding up? I'm, I'm going to steal one of your bags and make it a six <laughs> because five is not enough. It's it really is. It's one of those films that you have to really start. Like I said, really start picking at nits to find a bad piece Mm -hmm. of it. I love everything about this movie and it's an absolute five bagger for me. Yeah, I I am. I am on board with that completely too. This is, there is a reason why it is at the top list all over. This is one of these early films that did it right. And it's not one of the hidden films. It was known that it was a classic when it was made. It had three Academy Awards right off the bat. It, It is a great film. It is a wonderful film and you got to watch it. All right. 
Before we get out of here, Devin, where can the people on the internets find you and your lovely voice? Well, if you're if you're digging this show, then I hope that you will, uh, you know, you need more podcasts on your player. So I've actually just launched a new show with a running buddy of mine from North Texas named Mark Walters. And we're trying to figure out what we're going to call it because we've known each other for over a decade. And we were trying to figure out what project can we work on together. We can never find the good fit, never find the thing. And... We were actually watching Neighbors, the John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, finger quotes in the air comedy. We talk about that in our second episode that's uh, coming out. Uh, we're taping this on one day. It'll come out the, the following week from when we're taping it. But we would say, OK, the big film show. Wait, what? The big film show. That's what it's going to be. It's going to be big films. All it's going to be is big films. And I'm looking over at my copy of Ebert's The Great Movies. We're going to take stuff out of The Great Movies and we're just going to go back and revisit them. Do they hold up? And it grew from there. But the reason we call it The Big Film Show is because the domain was available and nobody's called a podcast The Big Film Show yet. We searched and it was available and neither of us could believe it. So if you go to bigfilmshow.com, you can catch it. Like I said, we're, it's a brand new show. We go twice weekly. Tuesdays, we either revisit classic films or we look at new releases. And on Friday, we break down entertainment news of the week. And once I ring off of this podcast, we're going to tape the show that goes on air tomorrow because... We are masochists and we love to torture ourselves. So Big Film Show is the domain. It's also all the social handles. And if you search that on any of the podcast directories, repositories, you will find us. By the time this episode comes out, you guys are going to have like 100 shows up because I am <laughs> way early on recording stuff. <laughs> it's good to have a backlog. We want to we have that same kind of backlog because I know it saves your ass. Oh, it's wonderful. As for myself... You can find me on Twitter at mmuckabout or on my other podcast, Unpacking the Power of Power Pack, which I host with Jeff, who is the stuff that dreams are made of. Aww. If you would like to be on this show, please feel free to contact me. You can reach me at Jeff and Rick Present, all one word at gmail.com. Big thank you to Longbox Crusade for letting me use this attic of their headquarters to broadcast their show. It is awesome. I get to see great movies on it. Also, thanks to their sponsor, Omaha Bound, who is still on their one-year hiatus. But they do some great binding. If you've got some old comic books, some real classic black and whites that you want to bind together into a nice hardbound, contact Omaha Bound. Also, thank you to the Longbox Crusade members who helped support this network. If you would like to support it, head on over to Patreon and search for Longbox Crusade. That's all the time we have. Grab some popcorn, pull up a seat. We will be back next week with another show. Music for this episode is Fall Back by musical genius Joe November. Check out his SoundCloud at Josephlin99. That's J O S E F L I N 99.